I think we'll call this one kettlebell swing diagnosis. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Wow. Okay. Looking forward to a great week. Um, we got a pretty good uh, Q&A for this morning. Um, if those of you who like to swing the kettlebell and if you have any questions or concerns about, about some technical issues, we've got one that's, that's a little bit more specific to address. And this question comes from Annie. And Annie says, I've noticed many of my clients, even the very mobile and symmetrical folks, tend to lose right side midfoot contact during kettlebell swings in the midway point of the hinge on the descent of the kettlebell swing. I'm wondering if this is a problem with the right hip missing some internal rotation. I'm thinking if the right hip is missing the kind of IR it needs for a deep squat or something further down the knee in the ankle complex and perhaps a bit of end range right hip extension too. However, extension looks, and Annie puts looks in quotation marks, uh, looks normal left and right. What are the common causes and systems to properly address it? Is it even a problem? And thanks for all you do and never stop. I never stop learning from your content. Thanks, Annie. I appreciate it. Hey, this is a really good question because I think it's really, really common. And so what Annie did is she actually sent me a video representation of, uh, of what she's asking about. And um, she didn't own the rights to it. Um, so she did send it to me though. And so what I did is I actually duplicated it. And so it looks something like that. And so I'm just gonna let this run for a second so you can kind of see it, put it in slow-mo to make it a little bit easier to see. And so there's some interesting findings here that are not all that uncommon. And so, but first let's consider what we really need to execute this kettlebell swing effect effectively. So there's two points in a kettlebell swing where motion has to actually stop and change direction. So what that means is that we have two propulsive efforts uh, in every kettlebell swing. Now, propulsion is an IR bias. And so what IR means is that we actually have to produce force into the ground at those two points. Otherwise, we don't really get a turnaround in, in this, this kettlebell swing. So we have to consider the key elements of our propulsive phase, which means that we wanna start from the ground up. So we have to have a, a middle propulsive foot. And so let's go back through our foot contact here. So if I think about an early propulsive foot, I've got a tibia that's, that's externally rotated and, and the tibia is actually behind the malleolus here. And what I have to be able to do though, is I have to bring this tibia towards internal rotation and I have to have an arch that will go downward. But I also have to maintain contact with my first metatarsal head here and my big toe here. And so that's our middle propulsive foot. And so if we, if we uh, lose that contact, then we really don't have a really strong middle propulsion from the ground up. And so if we see in the representation of, of Annie's question, what we actually see is we see an, an ER position of the foot. So we, we actually lose that medial heel contact. We lose the first metatarsal head. And so in this case, it looks like we're actually producing force into the ground in external rotation, which really isn't possible because external rotation actually moves us away from the ground. It's an expansive strategy, which actually lifts us up and reduces, this is a weird one, it reduces your total density, which is kind of interesting. So we're not really producing force in external rotation. So to stop the motion, that means that, that we have to have a compensatory strategy somewhere. And so if we don't have hip internal rotation, if we don't have have a middle propulsive foot, then what we have to do is, is we'll compensate with what 
is traditionally referred to as spinal extension. And what this actually is, it's a substitution for, for this distribution of interrotation bias through the system. And so we're gonna see the, the spine extend in multiple places which is typically gonna be a diagnosis of a posterior lower compressive strategy in the thorax and in the pelvis. So what you're gonna see is that concentric orientation below the level of the trochanter. You're gonna see concentric orientation below the level of the scapula in the thorax. You're also gonna see it up into the cervical spine, um, which, which you'll also be able to identify by head position as people are swinging um, their, their kettlebell. Now, how does this happen? Well. So people will present with these strategies because this is just a gravitational management strategy. So they may actually walk in the door with it or, or it's a coaching error. And so this is really, really common. Um, it's it's a, a, a concept that gets coached um, inappropriately in my mind with um, say a deadlift or um, any kind of hingy kind of stuff where they're, they're trying to hit the end range rather aggressively like a glute bridge. Um, and then uh, like a bilateral hip thrust, really common in a bilateral hip thrust. And so what happens is, is as you're coaching this, this, this hard end range hip extension, you're actually moving the pelvis between the femurs. You're moving it forward between the femurs. And to get into that position, I actually have to re-ER the hip. And so, Instead of driving forces into the ground um, through this middle propulsive foot, what we end up with is this ER position throughout the system, and then we have to promote some form of substitution. So if you were to do like a glute bridge or a hip thrust or something like that, you see somebody's knees going out um, rather aggressively at this end range of, of hip extension, understand that you're actually promoting this, this concentric orientation in this, this posterior lower. Now, if that's what you desire, then, then more power to you. I just want you to understand that what you're actually doing. So, now, how do we manage this thing? Okay, so go back to last week. Look at the narrow ISA end game video. There's a series of strategies that will help you alleviate some of this concentric orientation that you're dealing with in the, the posterior lower pelvis and thorax. Now, we can also use some of our, our split squat variations. So if you use a contralaterally loaded split squat, so contralateral to the front leg side, what this is actually going to allow you to do, it's actually gonna allow you to, to um, more easily move that lead hip into internal rotation. Now, when you come out of this, because of the loading strategy, you're actually gonna overload the, the external rotation moment as you come out, which is concentric orientation. But if you hang on, to the middle propulsive foot. So, so big toe, first met head, medial heel on the ground. You're actually gonna teach them how to maintain the IR bias under load. So you're actually gonna teach them how to capture this middle propulsive strategy. Once you can do that, then you wanna superimpose some velocity on top of it because we're talking about a very dynamic, explosive type of propulsive exercise like a kettlebell swing. And so we have to superimpose velocity, otherwise they're gonna fall back into the old strategy of trying to, to substitute with spinal extension. We don't really want that. And so what you can do is you use a split variation of your kettlebell swing. So this is, this is a swing that's on a diagonal from the split stance. And so again, we're using the same strategy we just used in the split squat to capture the IR and then maintain the propulsive, the middle propulsive foot on the ER. So Annie, I hope this helps you. I hope it answers your question. If it doesn't, please ask me another question at askbillhartman at gmail.com. Everybody have a fabulous Monday and I will see you tomorrow. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and
it is perfect. Already a busy Tuesday. Uh, mentorship calls this morning, big clinic day coming up, so we're gonna dive right into the Q&A. And this one comes from Jimmy. And so Jimmy watched the uh, three impingements, three strategies, three solutions video. And at the end of that, if you watch it all the way through, shame on you for not watching it all the way through, there's a little bonus comment about the, the fourth impingement. And so that's what Jimmy's question is about. He says, I watched your latest video on shoulder impingement. I was wondering if you could go into more detail about the posterior internal impingement and how would this presentation usually occur in regards to the, to the archetypes. And so um, it, it can present itself in, in both archetypes. It's going to be a little bit more of a bias towards one for, for reasons that you'll see. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the thing that we want to recognize that is in common with this is that this is a down pump handle sternum problem in, in all circumstances. Um, and so basically we just have to look at the archetypes and what their biases may be and, and we'll kind of see this. So, so the easiest one to see is, is to look at the narrow. And we've kind of looked at this before where we start with some sort of normal representation. And then the, the narrow archetype is going to um, initiate the compensatory strategies with more of a down pump handle situation. So we get a lot of anterior compression um, through the sternum. What that does is it creates a, a, a posterior expansion, relatively speaking. I'm gonna grab my shoulder model here for a second. And so we got the backside of the shoulder here. And so, so what we'll see then is th this would be where the dorsal rostral area is. We'll see a turn this way, and we get a compressive strategy right here on the backside of the shoulder. And so that's, again, that's why people reach over their shoulder and, and they, they point to that area, probably the most accurate test um, that you'll get. So it's this angulation of the scapula relative to the humerus. So anytime we have that situation, we have the potential for this, this type of a, a compressive strategy. For the wide, it's a little bit different because they, they have to get there with, with one prior step. So with the wide, we're, when we look at the compensatory strategies, we're typically going to see a dorsal rostral compression first. Under those circumstances, the, we don't get that angulation of the scapula relative to the humerus, so the internal impingement doesn't really show up too often. However, if we get the next layer of compensatory strategy where we get an anterior compression that follows, and this is a center of gravity issue, so we're trying to maintain center of gravity, so we push back against the sternum, we compress that downward. Now we bring the lateral aspect of that scapula forward to compress against the thorax, and now we can pick up this angulation um, that, that we're talking about between the scapula and the humerus that would cause this, this internal impingement. Um, there's a little bit of a difference here um, because when we talk about the, uh, the, the wides, this will typically show up in some, somebody that still has the posterior lower expansion in the ribcage. So this is not typically going to show up in an end game presentation. And so where we were talking about the narrow, where we'd have this kind of an angulation with the, with the wide, they, they pull this part of the, of the uh, scapula back forward to the thorax, and then there's a little tilt this way. So this is the posterior lower expansion that tilts this on a little bit of, a, of an anterior orientation. And then we get the, the compressive strategy a little bit more superiorly than, than, than posteriorly as we would see in the narrow. Now, in an asymmetrical presentation, we can still get this situation as well. It's going to be very similar to uh, what the narrow kind of looks like because, because of the turn that's associated with the asymmetrical 
ISA presentation, we, we get the posterior expansion on the side, we get the same kind of an angulation as we would see in the narrow. So from a solution standpoint, it's incredibly simple from a conceptual uh, point of view, and that is we've got to get the pump handle to come back up. So let's talk about narrows and, and, and the asymmetricals because they, their presentations are very similar, so we can kind of group them together. So they have some posterior expansion posteriorly. And so what we want to do is we want to use a concentric dorsal rostral strategy and, and push that volume forward into the pump handle to bring it up. So, so right away, one of the easiest places to put these people is in quadruped. We get a concentric yielding, yielding strategy in dorsal rostral, and that's going to pr provide us with that, that uh, pump handle situation. We can progressively increase the, the angle of elevation of the upper extremity as we gain range of motion to make sure that we get the manubrium to move. We need that to move as well, and we get normal rotation around the SC joint. Otherwise, you're still going to have restrictions in, in the ability of that pump handle to come up, and you still might have some, some residual symptoms. Once we achieve a certain level of elevation comfortably, now we can start to use um, cable reaching activities at about 90 degrees of, of elevation. And what this is going to do, it's going to um, start to apply a stronger posterior compressive strategy and again drive that volume forward anteriorly into the up pump handle. So your, your key performance indicators in this situation is going to be a restoration of shoulder internal rotation as the external rotation will gradually decrease. At this point, we can start to move the shoulder back into external rotation positions and a posterior compressive strategy. So this is where your I's, T's, and Y's fall into play. Your, your P and F patterns are going to show up here, um, and then um, face pulls as well. I'm still a big fan of doing these activities unilaterally rather than bilaterally because I just don't want to create um, a pure compressive strategy under most circumstances. There are situations where we may do that. Like if we're working with somebody that, that has to perform a lot of pressing activities, we might utilize that. But again, we also might be sacrificing some other things as a, as a trade-off. When it comes to the wides from a strategy standpoint, we still have to get the up pump handle, but remember that a wide is going to start with dorsal rostral compression before that pump handle gets pushed down. So we want to make sure that we recapture that dorsal rostral expansion first. So we have some air volume in the upper thorax. So if I'm compressed A to P and I don't have any volume there, it's very difficult for me to play that strategy. So if I get dorsal rostral expansion first, now I have some air volume that I can push forward into that pump handle. So I may do that you know, with, with any number of dorsal rostral expansion activities. Um, I'm a big fan of doing these things unilaterally as well. So I actually might have to start somebody supine under certain circumstances. So we may do that. Um, now, here's a little tricky thing. From a symptom standpoint, so we're just talking about the discomfort that's associated with this strategy. If I have a wide ISA, you may have actually heard stories of people saying, oh, I just did a bunch of rows and I got rid of my pain. And that can actually happen. So remember, that we're talking about a scapula that is on this this anterior orientation. So so we've got the we've got the uh, uh, lateral aspect of the scapula moving forward, and we've got that little tilt forward that's associated with the uh, posterior lower expansion. If I do what would we consider lat development exercises, so so any kind of like pulling activities that would compress 
the inferior angle of the scapula against the thorax. So, so I am compressing the lower posterior rib cage intentionally. I can actually tilt that scapula and alleviate the symptom because I reduced the angle here at the glenohumeral joint that was causing the problem in the first place. Now, yes, it's a solution from a pain standpoint, but I also may be sacrificing shoulder range of motion. So, so you're gonna have to make a choice there as to if you wanna use that strategy or not. Under some circumstances, it may not be a problem. If I'm a power lifter and I'm concerned about pushing my numbers up on the bench press, this actually might be performance enhancing to a degree and alleviate some shoulder discomfort because I'm not really concerned about maximizing shoulder range of motion from an athletic standpoint or a gen pop standpoint, might not be the strategy we wanna go with. But I just wanted to throw that out there because um, it does happen, but I don't want everybody to think that it is the solution for every circumstance because it can cause secondary consequences. Jimmy, great question. Thank you for following up on that video. I really appreciate you for, for doing that. If I didn't answer your question, um, please ask me another one at askbillhartman at gmail.com. Everybody have a fabulous Tuesday, and I'll see you tomorrow. So what we have here is a two strategies, one plain question. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Wednesdays are crunch time. We got we to gotta cook through this, but a quick reminder, we got the Coffee and Coaches Conference call tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Eastern. Um, please join us. The link will be on my professional base, Facebook page, um, which is at Bill Hartman PT, I believe. And so please join us, they've been, they've been great calls. If you can't make the call, hey, why not throw up a question here on the, on the Instagram or on the YouTubes if that's where you're watching this. Speaking of YouTube, uh, I had a question that came through YouTube from David and he says, Bill, with a big exclamation point. So apparently he's very excited to send me a message and I appreciate that. Here's a big fan of videos on YouTube. Well, there you go. That's why you got the exclamation point. Um, based off your explanation, with th this knee pain, it seems that limitations are internal rotation. We should try to restore femoral tibial internal rotation through the foot and pronation to fall into dorsiflexion rather than plantar flexion in the mid propulsive phase. I even find that sometimes abdominal work on the same side of knee pain along with posterior thorax expansion will help with the knee pain as well. I'd appreciate your feedback. Thanks. David, this is really good. So, so David is watching the uh, a knee pain video that's, that's on YouTube. There's a reference right there. And, and so what we want to talk about here is the two strategies, one plain concept. And, and so the, the reason that we want to do this is because what we have to recognize is that we have only two strategies available to us. We can either expand or we can compress. And each one of those is represented in the human body by internal and external rotation. And so, so all movements are based off of those, those two rotations, which fall into the transverse plane. So again, two strategies, one plane. So when, when I put together the archetypes um, as the wides and the narrows, what I, what I did is I was constructing the archetypes to represent the two extremes. So one is this massive compressor, one is this massive expander. And so that's why they have these biases towards, towards certain strategies. The thing that you want to recognize regardless of the archetype is that as we apply forces into the ground, we are, we are superimposing internal rotation on top of external rotation. And so one of the limitations that I think 
most people have because of the way that they've been educated and because of the way the information is presented is that there's certain areas of your body that internally and externally rotate and there's certain areas um, that, that don't or they do the opposing. And the thing we want to recognize is that internal and external rotation is systemic. So it's the entire system that is moving into and out of internal and external rotation. Um, it's, it's supported by the, the breathing mechanism as we, as we internally and ex externally rotate. And so when we run into compensatory strategies or, or other limitations that are superimposed upon us, that's where we might have problems that arise because now we have to strategize how to maintain our two strategies under some certain circumstance or limitation or some other context. And so again, if, if um, we want to look at this thing as, as uh, how we distribute these things, so we can look at the foot and, and David mentioned this is that, okay, so what I want to be able to do to, to alleviate the, the pressure on the knee is I need to be able to uh, acquire this this middle propulsive strategy where this arch goes down and I get the tibial internal rotation. If I can't do that, so if I have an orientation or I have a strategy that I have to use where I'm trying to maintain a supinated foot, I have just eliminated my ability to distribute internal rotation throughout the system and now I might get a focal load. So maybe that shows up as, as a knee compensatory strategy and now I have too much internal rotation force that's applied locally and then that might result in a, in a pain experience. So, so structure and strategy are going to help us determine how we're going to produce the, these, these forces. Um, and once again, if we don't distribute them well, we're going to find a way. You're going to find a way to internally rotate. And, and so what I want you to start to recognize is that anytime you use the words extension, adduction, or internal rotation, we're talking about the exact same thing. This is a force that goes into the ground. So we will find a way to apply force into the ground. So now let's take this up to the pelvis for a second. So let's just say that I have some form of, of compressive compensatory strategy that is gonna take away um, some of my, my internal rotation um, via orientation, compression, etc. What, I'm, what I might see is somebody anteriorly orienting their, their pelvis forward. This is another attempt to get force into the ground. So this is internal rotation. That again might, might limit my ability to distribute. So now maybe somebody walks in with, with back pain. So the solutions for, for us as practitioners and coaches, when we have limitations in movement, when we have situations where people might be, be coming to us with, with uh, pain experiences, is we have to determine what strategies that they are using. And then as we alleviate that, and we teach them how to redistribute these forces throughout the system, this is the solution in many, many cases. Not every case, sometimes we have constraints that have changed, sometimes we have um, neurologic influences that, that will supersede the, the biomechanical aspect of this. But in many, many cases, um, we've just failed to, to distribute these forces. And so um, I would encourage you, number one, um, as a solution is learn how to measure reliably. You have to create a representation of what this person is bringing to you um, in, in three dimensions, preferably four dimensions, because we do have a time constraint here that in, under many cases, Secondly, you need to recapture external rotation. So external rotation is a very, very broad field. Internal rotation is superimposed upon it. If I have limitations in the expansive, 
expansive capability, which means I've limited ER, I've immediately limited my IR capabilities, and now I have a limited capacity to distribute force and load throughout the system. Okay, once I recapture the external rotation, that's the time to start to superimpose internal rotation upon it in a distributed manner if, if my goal is to increase adaptability. When we're talking about performance, what we're talking about taking somebody into the weight room or we're, or we're training them to produce speed and force and power, we may intentionally restrict the adaptability to create these high levels of performance because higher force output speed demands that we have limitations in movement. So we might have to do that intentionally, but but we monitor them over time with key performance indicators to make sure that we don't end up with, with vocal pressures, potential destructions, et cetera, et cetera. If we just do the best we can, injuries are gonna happen no matter what. Um, so David, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I love talking about the two strategies, one plain concept. It's so simple, but it needs to be understood so it can be applied effectively so we can provide solutions to our patients and our clients. Everybody have a fabulous Wednesday. Um, coffee and coaches conference call 6 a.m. tomorrow. I will see you guys there. Have a great day. Happy Thursday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Bill, kind of building off of all this, if you were dealing with one of those like bodybuilders that step on stage at like 260 pounds that have that has like pretty gnarly sciatica mm -hmm. from it, how does your thought process in handling that change? Because now this guy's going to keep training and keep trying to push the needle forward. What's like, because sciatica is, I guess, like a result of a similar uh, like positional thing, like that posterior yeah. compression, just pushing forward. And um, <clears throat> how, how would you go about managing that? Because this guy's going to want to squat heavy. He's going to want to leg press heavy. He's going to want to do all this stuff. What, yeah. what would be, what would kind of be your guiding light for that? Well, you're, I mean, you're in, one, you have a, you have an adult conversation with him and you, and you say, look, the, the chances of you feeling great, you know, if you're not willing to make the changes that I need you to make, you know, you're not going to feel good. Um, right. But, but um, something that, that, if he if he can't deep squat that would be a place that you might need to go as a representation of creating the the posterior expansion that you're going to need because a lot of times um if you can if you can get them to do that and again this it's if they can't already do it unless, unless they're under like you know they, like those kind of guys when they're squatting like 500 pounds 600 pounds on a regular basis um they, that's how they deep squat. They get pushed into it, right? They, they, they have a massive yielding strategy that allows them to get down there. Um, <clears throat> but you're going to need something that, that, it, that is representative of them getting sufficient posterior expansion um, because they're, they're, they're losing. What, what happens is they're losing the, 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 the field of, of external rotation Right? So the extra rotation gets narrower and narrower and narrower, and it starts to compress the internal rotation as well. So then they get kind of stuck in the middle where they don't have sufficient external rotation. And then the internal rotation they do is like maxed out. And so what we always want, we always want a broader field of external rotation than internal rotation. <clears throat> what, what would, that's what you want to chase. That's what you want to chase first. What would be kind of like your litmus test? Would it be the ability or like what would be your um, like kind of KPI? Would it be the ability to get down below parallel and hold it? Or would it be a... I would want them to be able to... I, I need them to get as low as possible without 
hang on, without the posterior orientation. So, so here's what we don't want to see. We don't want the pelvis and the lumbar spine to move as a single segment in a posterior orientation. So you don't want that lumbar flexion moment. Okay. You, you got to be able to identify the difference between the posterior orientation with, with the lumbar spine inflection versus somebody that can, that can deep squat into counter nutation with, right. the, with the, the lumbar spine following as it normally would, right? What, what are some like long-term negative repercussions of squatting that deep with the lumbar moving posterior like that? Uh, <laughs> take every negative side effect uh, associated with lumbar flexion and, and then just, just okay. like count them up. Right. Okay. Yeah. See, that's, that's, that's the thing. It's like, it's like pe people have a lot of difficulty distinguishing between the two. And, and, and once you, once you've seen both of them, you know, you, you will identify the difference. Right. Because, um, and, and the, the cool thing about it, is that you've probably already seen this and you've probably seen it change for the better um, just by watching guys put more weight on the bar. So if you've ever seen a guy that can squat like four to 500 pounds um, anytime that he wants and you watch him warm up and he puts 135 on the bar for some unknown reason, they think that everybody has to put go like plate by plate. But you watch him squat with 135 and it looks horrendous. And then by the time he gets to four or five, he's got this really, really pretty squat because now he can actually use a yielding strategy because his tissues are so stiff from lifting the heavy stuff that when he does try to squat without load or with a very, very light load, he has to use the posterior orientation to get that. But when you put the weight on him and then he shows that he demonstrates a yielding strategy, he gets, he gets the yield um, in the pelvis and the sacrum and, and, the, and the lumbar spine that you're supposed to have in a pretty squat. Right. Do you, you, do you understand what I'm saying? When I, when I know I'm exactly. Saying? I know exactly what you mean. Okay. I know what you're Because there is a difference. There is a difference. I was going to say, when Seth and I hear squat, we, uh, we rig the, the safety squat bar in such a way that lets us get tremendous depth, but we definitely get some of that lumbar flexion. Yeah, you got it's, it's weird, though, because it feels incredibly safe. It doesn't feel like we're, we're in a position that might be compromised. It feels like we're not, we're not necessarily that heavy yet, yeah. with the load but yeah. it feels incredibly safe it almost feels like we're just driving a piston up and down like we feel like well, locked in. So, so so make a comparison get get like a, a 10 degree heel elevation yeah and then do it flat-footed and then make the comparison okay because because if you feel because you'll feel the difference because the 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 heel elevation will give you a yielding strategy more so than your heels flat under most circumstances. And so that, that will give you even a better sense of, of what you're actually doing. Can you show a representation of the two that you're discussing? Of? The lumbar flexion versus? Yeah, I think, I think. <clears throat> and I was gonna say, wouldn't, wouldn't a heel right. lift change? I, gotta, I, I have to actually use a term that I never use because I hate it with a passion. Okay. There, your world's changing. Yeah. Well, sometimes you got to speak the language to make a point, right? Yep. Hang on. Yeah. This is really hard. This is really hard for me to say it out loud. <clears throat> Hang on. Okay. When people talk about butt wink. <laughs> All right. What that is is the, it's the posterior orientation of the pelvis and the flexion of the lumbar spine as a single unit. 
And that's, that's, the, that's the negative representation of it. And so when the whole pelvis, let me get this lined up, when the whole pelvis posteriorly rotates, and, and if I'll show it from front, so, and I get that kind of a thing, right? So it does that, okay? That's bad because under most of those circumstances, the sacrum is still nutated, in, relatively speaking. And then you get the flexion in the lumbar spine. That's where you get, everybody goes, wow, look at the size of his erectors. And it's like, no, that's the lumbar spine flexing. <laughs> okay. Now, as you, as you capture depth and you get below 90 degrees of hip flexion, if I can get the sacrum to, to, to counter nutate a little bit, and then you'll see, you'll see like a, um, you'll see the indentation at, um, uh, the thoracolumbar junction, so, so T11-12, will we'll still have its little inward curve. Then you'll see the lumbar spine come back out and there'll be this nice nice relationship where it's almost, like, I don't wanna say flat, but it's, it's not the big rounding under of the pelvis when, when they hit depth. And, and you, like I said, once you, once you see it, you'll understand the difference in the two where one is a counter nutation of the sacrum and the other one is a nutation with, with, with the orientation. And the one with the nutation, the orientation is not what, you, what you're looking for. You can get away with it for a while, but it's just not recommended because chances are under those circumstances, you're walking around with a nutated sacrum. You've got an anterior orientation of the pelvis, which creates a compressive strategy on the backside of, of the lumbar joints. So what that does is it puts pressure on the posterior aspect of the disc. Enough pressure on the disc in that way reduces the blood flow to the bone above and below the disc that supplies the disc with its nutrition. The disc starts to, to break down and then you have a flexion moment and everybody says, oh, flexion causes the disc herniation, which is like, yeah, it's the end result, but it was the other crap that you did before with the compressive strategy that, that promoted the, the degeneration of the disc, the weakening of the, of the sort of the, the radial structure of the disc. Right, so you have to have all this this extension-based compression first. Then you have a flexion moment. That's why we want to avoid flexion. Let's rethink the performance foot. Good morning, happy Friday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand, and it is perfect. Man, that's good. Okay, man, what a week. We had a killer week this week. Um, lots of things going on, lots of, lots of really cool uh, mentorship calls. Kind of had like, once again, the perfect storm of questions that came through this week. And there was a whole series of, of foot-related stuff that came through some mentorship calls and, and some of the Q&As. And so I thought I would just wrap up Friday with a little bit of perspective on the, the performance-related foot because I think it's still a little bit of a challenge for people because of some of the biases that have been created over time and some of the perspectives as to what constitutes a, a, a good performance foot um, versus one that, that is interference. And so I, I want us to look at this thing, thing differently. Now, let me preface everything that I'm about to say is that performance is multifactorial. There are so many potential influences here. Um, it's not just a foot thing. Um, the foot is one part and, but we're gonna talk about it in isolation 
to give you a little bit of perspective. So the things that you also probably need to consider is like, okay, what kind of an archetype are we dealing with? What are some of the proportional issues uh, in, in physical structure? So the size of your thorax relative to the size of your pelvis is an influence in, in performance. Your proportions as far as, you know, the length of your axial skeleton to the length of the appendicular skeleton is, is an influence. Your force to weight ratio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so again, let's, let's keep this in perspective, okay? The first thing we want to do then is we want to review uh, a little bit about <clears throat> the simplified foot model, okay? So we're going to go through the, the, the phases of, of uh, this foot position. So our traditional heel rocker would represent this, this early propulsive phase. So as I bring the medial calcaneus to the ground and I get the forefoot to the ground and the toes are extended, the tibia is still behind the foot. So this is an ER position. So I still have an arch and I've got an ER tibia relative to the foot. And so that's my early propulsive foot. As I move through middle, this is where the arch is going to move down towards the ground. So this is your traditional pronation. This is tibial internal rotation. So this is a, a lower arch. Now, here's the, here's the key element of this that I want you to understand is that the maximum force into the ground is at maximum pronation. And where that is, max, pro, max propulsion is just as that medial calcaneus re-breaks from the ground. And so this is actually a low position of the arch because right after that, I'm going to get a bunch of concentric orientation on the plantar aspect of the foot. This is what they traditionally call that windlass effect. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna crank that sucker back into an externally rotated position, right? And that is traditionally considered this, this high propulsive foot, but the, the, the force application came just prior to that. And so this is the demonstration of what happens after that force production. And so when we talk about a performance related foot, this is why we're gonna see lower arches on a lot of these really, really high performance. And you, so people look at these feet and they go, oh, these are really crappy feet because pronation has always been described as this accommodative foot position, which is not untrue, but the highest force production also happens in maximum pronation. So that's where our max propulsion is. So when we look at feet like this, it can be a little confusing as to why we would see the, these, these low arches. But what they're actually doing is it's a time saver that allows these athletes to get to maximum propulsion much faster than, than what we would consider our, our non-athletic population. And so that's, that's what they're representing. Now, we've got some subtle differences between these, these low arched feet as well that we can, we can talk about. So if we have um, someone that is closer to maximum propulsion than say another athlete, what you're typically, typically gonna see under these circumstances is you'll see, if we were making a comparison in performance, we would see a better broad jump than a better, than, than vertical jump. So it doesn't mean they're bad vertical jumpers, it just means that as a representation of, of where they perform the best, they are better at horizontal projection because they are so much closer to, to maximum propulsion than, than um, another athlete would be. And so they'll have the quicker first step, they'll have great acceleration. But what you're gonna measure, um, if you if you're to throw them on the table, they're gonna be biased more towards external rotation. So remember, as I break that foot, I get this concentric orientation that's gonna, gonna move me quicker um, towards ER. So what happens is, is they have a reduced yielding strategy, which again, that dampens their ability to produce a vertical jump, but it also improves their horizontal projection. They're gonna have limited hip flexion, they'll probably have limited straight leg raise, etc. that's associated 
with this external rotation bias and a reduced yielding strategy. If I move you back just slightly from, from max propulsion, I have now just increased the amount of time that you have between where you are um, as a representation of your center of gravity and maximum propulsion. So in doing so now, I've actually increased the time that you have to produce that yielding strategy. These are the people that will have a better vertical jump than broad jump as a representation, but they're gonna be a little bit slower in regards to change of direction, but they'll get, they're gonna have better top speed because their vertical projections are better. They're gonna have slightly less external rotation bias, so they're gonna have a little bit more of an internal rotation um, capability than, than say our guys that are better horizontal projector, pr projectors. And so um, they'll have a little bit better hip flexion, a little bit, a little bit better straight leg raise. So if we look at a couple representations of feet, I'll try to show you show you the, the subtle little difference. So what we have right there is a pair of feet that can run a 4-4-40. So he is, he is very, very good at acceleration. He is very, very good at, at, at change of direction. So this is a Division I football player, and, and he played four years of, of, of high-level Division I uh, uh, football. This other representation right here, it looks very, very similar, but this is a better vertical jumper than a horizontal projector. And so this is actually a very, very high level basketball player. And so he's got a better vertical jump than, than horizontal projection. And, and so again, subtle differences as to how close these guys are to, to their maximum propulsion phase. Now, let me show you another pair of feet that don't jump very well and not very fast, but also on a very high level basketball player. So this this individual has a much higher arch. He is, is positioned much more into an earlier phase. So he's a little bit slower. He doesn't jump as high and he's not as fast. It doesn't mean that he can't play high level basketball. It just means that he's going to rely on other things. This person also happens to be exceptionally tall. And so again, we have all of these representations. So again, everything's multifactorial from a performance perspective. There are many different different ways that, that these people can perform. But what we're, we want to start to think about is like, okay, I have these different feet, they're gonna be better at different things, and, and is one element that supports this, this high level of performance. Now, let's take this into the clinic. So I can take these same concepts, um, and I can start to look at my, my quote unquote normal people um, from a very, very similar perspective. So when I see a pair of feet that um, might be uh, more pronated, so the arch is lower to the ground, I might have this person that is struggling with gravity. And so they're in a, in a situation where they're constantly producing a higher force into the ground because they're just not managing gravity as well. He will have the compensatory strategies that we'll typically see. He'll have a lot of concentric muscle orientation and therefore a lot of limitations in range of motion. Under those circumstances, we probably want to move him away from maximum propulsion to give him the capacity to move through his extra rotation to intra rotation strategies, and this allows him to move away from the ground to reduce the concentric orientation and then restore a lot more of the, of the active range of motion that he's missing. So again, it's just a matter of perspective of what we're looking at, but feet are always a great representation of this. They're very confirming as far as some of your measures that you're going to find um, on up the, the, uh, the chain, so to speak. So, so some of your top-down influences are going to be represented in the feet. If you can't manage this from a top-down influence, then it maybe it is time to do something about this at the foot. So maybe this is your manual therapies for the foot. Maybe this is selecting activities that are specifically designed to, to uh, 
improve the representation of sensation from the ground up. Maybe this is the person that you put in, in an orthotic as a, as a solution to give them the capacity of adaptability. Performance is an intentional reduction of adaptability to create a higher level of, of output. Whereas when we're trying to make people more adaptable, such as the, the rehab situation, now we need to take away some of that, that reduction in adaptability, restore it to give them the ability to rest, reduce that, um, reduce concentric orientation, and then restore ranges of motion. So hopefully that just gives you a little bit of perspective on what we're talking about when we're talking about the performance-related foot and how it might be related um, to, to what we're measuring on the table or what we're seeing um, on the court or on the field. If you have any questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Have an outstanding Friday and a great weekend, and I will see you next week.